All right. Good to be back with you. Acts chapter 8, starting in the very beginning there. I've decided to call this message the bulldozed church. Now, I'm not implying that they had bulldozers back in those days in the first century, but I think the first Christians did feel like they were run over by a bulldozer if they knew what that was. It was very dramatic, very powerful, um, brutal persecution coming through the church. So um, persecution is really going to be our subject this morning. We're in Acts 8, which flows right out of the events of chapter 7, which ended with the killing of Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr. In Acts 8, we find the first case of a a serious outpouring of persecution in church history. So I'm glad we're here in the book of Acts because I think a lot of pastors these days are feeling the need to start preparing our people for the future. Um, I don't know what's coming, but I do know it's never been cool to be a Christian who's given their whole heart to Jesus Christ. That's never been a popular thing in any time in any culture. But it has always been legal here in the United States to love Jesus with all your heart. No one tried to compel you to deny your faith or punish you if you were faithful to it. But the times are changing. They're changing rather quickly. And I don't know what's going to happen. But the signs are pointing in a a negative direction in terms of the freedom that the Christians have to practice their faith openly in our country. So I don't foresee jail or prison or death in in Western countries. Uh, But I do see various forms of canceling, job losses, the denial of certain academic positions, programs, career advancement, uh, restricted speech, things like that. Maybe the closing of Christian schools and colleges. Um, I just read this week a a U.S. Navy task force just put out a a new pledge they're planning to initiate and amongst all the sailors are all going to have to take this pledge and it's it's not just to treat fellow service members all fellow service members with respect that would be a perfectly fine pledge Um, it's different than that this pledge says I pledge to advocate for and acknowledge all lived experiences and intersectional identities of every sailor in the Navy. You have to pledge to advocate for all lived experiences and intersectional identities. That goes way beyond just respect for one another. If you do not advocate for transgenderism, which was what this is really about, for example, they they plainly say that you don't belong in the United States Navy. And that's what intersectional identities is about. So you cannot hold the position, for example, that women should have rights to private areas. You can't even believe that or state that in any way. You have to advocate for the opposite of that, that women should be protected in their privacy on ships or in, in, uh, on bases or anything like that, or else you are a wicked person. You have to pledge to advocate against that. A female sail- sailor could be punished for advocating for safe spaces for women and male sailor- sailors could be punished for advocating on behalf of women that they have safe spaces for them. So that could that would be failing to advocate for all lived experiences and intersectional identities of every sailor in the Navy. You c- you doing that would be a violation of a pledge they're going to require you to make. So that's how these things become problematic. You force people to say things they don't believe and that reasonable people wouldn't believe. Um, So this phrase intersectional identities it's not a scientific term. It's an ideological term. So this is an imposed ideology on the hearts of people. 
that kind of thing is happening not only in the military but in government, in uh, businesses, big businesses, and, and now we're seeing it in the military. So uh, it's really interesting. A story came out of Australia just this very recently. They just passed a law in, in the state. Victoria has states. I mean, Australia has states like America, and Victoria is one of the states. And this law is called the Change or Suppression Conversion Practices Prohibition Bill of 2020. <gasps> That's a lot of words, huh? Change or Suppression Conversion Practices Prohibition Bill 2020. It's something like what we have in some states in the United States, like New York and uh, California, I believe, has a similar law too, against something called conversion therapy. Now, conversion therapy was sort of a trendy uh, method that some Christian counselors were using years back to uh, change a person's sexual orientation. It was kind of a weird form of behavior modification, and I kind of read up on how it was done, and it was kind of kooky, but uh, it's not a biblical approach, but it did catch on for a while because people, you know, people really wanted to help someone with same-sex attraction and find a way out for them, and psychology was sort of ruling the church in those days so this was sort of a form of psychology blended in with spiritual things and some pretty odd characters ran that stuff and they claimed they had all these answers and there were some painful stories about young people being forced into these conversion therapy programs and uh, by families and they were genuinely mistreated in certain ways by that in some places but that's not what this law in Victoria Australia is about that's not what it's addressing this law that was just passed makes it illegal, illegal to help adults who want to change through spiritual means their sexual identity or they're bent in a certain direction. Simple prayer is outlawed in this law. Um, so this is the Change or suppress Suppression Conversion Practices Prohibition Bill of 2020 and it defines change or suppression practice as follows. This is the actual language in the bill. A practice or conduct directed towards a person whether with or without the person's consent on the basis of the person's sexual orientation or gender identity and for the purpose of changing or suppressing the sexual orientation or gender identity of the person or inducing the person to change or suppress their sexual orientation or gender identity. So changing or suppressing practices are defined as quote carrying out a religious practice including but not limited to a prayer based practice a deliverance practice or an exorcism well I wouldn't want to exercise anybody out of that but um, prayer prayer is is illegal to pray with someone who comes to you seeking change or even just the suppression, the minimization of their sexual desires, their orientation, or to get rid of gender dysphoria, simply praying for that person will be a crime, is now is a crime in the state of Victoria in Australia. That's a free country, supposedly. So prayer is specifically mentioned as a criminal act. ABC News uh, reported the bill's penalties. It said, if someone is found to have conducted suppression practices, that caused serious injury, they could face criminal charges, including up to 10 years in jail or a fine of almost $10,000. Serious injury, well, that sounds really bad. I mean, if you're going to seriously injure somebody by prayer. 
but um, that word is undefined. Serious injury is left undefined. There's a man named Patrick McIver who's a big supporter of this bill who actually went through conversion therapy of some kind at his church and he described what it was like in an interview. He said it was conversations with the pastor who was very loving but it was a mixture of the Bible and certain psychological theories about the origins of homosexuality. So the injury was being told he says in the interview that homosexual behavior was a sin that could send you to hell. That that was the serious injury. In other words the gospel is a serious injury because all sin will send you to hell. Right. So um, that's trauma. He calls it trauma to be told that and serious harm. So that bill is outlawing the gospel lovingly presented with prayer as a cause of serious harm because it traumatizes somebody's mental state or something like that. So the Apostle Paul obviously himself would be guilty of causing that kind of injury uh, for writing 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9 which says do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor the effeminate nor homosexuals nor thieves nor covetous nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says and such were some of you. In fact in uh, 2019 still talking about Australian Australia an Australian athlete named Israel Folau was dropped by the World Cup rugby team. He was a, a big star on this team. He's one of the great rugby players of our time because he posted memes on Facebook with Bible verses about repenting of your sins to be saved and he just listed all the kind of sins that Paul listed there and homosexuality was one of them so he was kicked off the team. He was a top player and now he, they've dropped him. He's lost his whole career in athletics and according to the Sydney Morning Herald a newspaper down there he said quote this is how he f responded to being dropped. He said whatever God's will is whether that's to continue playing or not I am more than happy to do what he wants me to do. He said he would miss playing football adding quote my faith in Jesus Christ is what comes first. I'll stand on what the Bible says. I share it with love. I can see the other side of the coin where people's reactions are the total opposite to how I'm sharing it. I have love towards everyone that might be saying negative things. I choose to love them because God loved me. So he could not publicly express that certain behaviors are sinful without losing his career. He wasn't put in prison. He wasn't tortured. He wasn't killed. He was fired for private activity unrelated to his job. So no persecution in Western countries for now will not be violence from the government. The, the focus will be on a faithful believers making a faithful believers world smaller and smaller. That's that's sort of the plan. That's what's in the works. Opportunities will be restricted unless you bow to the whims of an ever changing culture. So the fear is what's supposed to be created by all of these laws. A fear, a fear of being canceled or ostracized will be the method of control. But in Australia they're actually talking about jail time, serious jail time and fines, large fines. In many countries today in other parts of the world physical violence, murder, and prison are still commonplace experiences for faithful Christians. China, Iran, North Korea, uh, India more and more 
are very dangerous places for believers these days. And I, I think North Korea is still the worst by these organizations that measure these things because there it's just absolutely death, brutal, un, unspeakable atrocities there for following Christ faithfully. So let's go back to our text now. And um, so we're, we're at the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. The, the rage killing of the evangelist Stephen by Israel's leaders happens right at the end of chapter 7. And that puts a target on the church on any follower of Jesus in Jerusalem and the church in Jerusalem was really the only organized church in the world at the time that we know of. So I think the first church was actually concerned about persecution. The apostles had been arrested twice already for preaching Jesus and they were told to keep quiet and it was serious enough that in Acts chapter 4 verse 29 the whole church remember where they were praying and they said now Lord take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. That's what they were going to do. That's what they wanted God's help for. They thought the gospel was much more important than the threats but the apostles had been warned and beaten once so there was a definite danger. But I don't think they suddenly expected this whirlwind of terror that came upon them after the stoning of Stephen. That, that was just probably not expected. But it was all due to the dedicated efforts of one person, a man named Saul, a man who took very seriously the religion of his fathers as he had been taught it and was planning to destroy the Christian church. So we met him at the end of chapter 7. He played a very minor role in the stoning of Stephen. In fact, he held the coats of those um, hurling stones down on Stephen. Acts chapter 7 verse 58 says when they had driven him out of the city they began stoning him and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So now look at chapter 8 verse 1 and we'll see that Saul quickly moves from being a watcher to a leader. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church entering house after house and dragging off men and women he would put them in prison. So that's a pretty serious level of persecution going on right there. Saul is terrorizing the Christian community. He's knocking down doors. He's invading people's homes. He's dragging them off and putting them in prison. Just imagine what that experience would be like to literally just have your door kicked in and you're dragged off to some dungeon somewhere just for being a Christian. If you think LA County Jail is bad, just imagine what a, a ancient prison would be like. Uh, no facilities. It's a horrible existence. Now we all know that Saul is going to become the apostle Paul who gave every fiber of his being to serve Jesus even unto death. It's interesting from our vantage point knowing that Luke keeps Saul's future identity a secret here. We don't know that. If you were reading this book back then you're just starting it. Saul is this villain right? What a shocking reveal it's going to be for the ancient reader who didn't already know the story when he finds out in a few chapters later that Saul's going to become a Christian. But right now all we know is what Luke tells us after the killing of Stephen uh, that Saul goes on this rampage. But we have even more details um, from Paul himself in the New Testament uh, book of Acts and in uh, 1 Timothy about his own description of what he did in those days. 1 Timothy 1.13 Paul told Timothy he said I was formerly a blasphemer 
and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. So there was violence involved in all of this. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 22, verse 4, Paul is giving his testimony in Jerusalem um, and he describes to those who wanted him punished how he used to treat the church himself. He says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. And also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. Damascus is outside the Holy Land so he was going to take this as far as he could. A little bit later in that same chapter chapter 22 verse 19 he says I used to imprison and beat those who believed in Jesus. More horribly in Acts chapter 26 when he's talking to Herod Agrippa Paul says this about himself. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison having received authority from the chief priests but also when they were being put to death I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in the synagogues I tried to force them to blaspheme and being furiously enraged at them I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. So there were executions. There was physical pressure. There was torture to try to get people to blaspheme Jesus. And Saul led that effort. He was furious he says with the Christians. He was driven by hate. Did he know that what he was doing was wrong? No. He believed that these people were a threat to the religion of Abraham. It's really helpful to think about what drives persecution in the world just to kind of get an understanding of who the opposition is going to be. Now obviously there's a spiritual component to it. There are spiritual powers at work in the hearts of men in the world against anything that God is doing that anything good and true. Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world John chapter 12 verse 31 and Christians do live in enemy occupied territory as I like to call it because um, the ruler of this world is Satan. It's his system. Everything's set up with him, by him, uh, the, the powers of the world, the way they function. That's why things rarely go well. Uh, Satan already um, has the next lie or, or deception in mind that men are going to buy into as history moves forward. He's got all kinds of wicked demons working on that stuff and they develop wicked systems uh, corruption and the darkness that is in human hearts they feed that uh, constantly. So injustice and cruelty and oppression and perversion Satan loves all of those things. So naturally he is active in trying to bend the world against what God is doing and actively engaged in fighting against the church or corrupting the church which is easier actually sometimes. Paul says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light to lead people astray. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 14. In 2 Corinthians 12 verse 7 Paul describes ailments or afflictions that he has as messengers of Satan. Things that are keeping him from doing his work. Paul told the Thessalonians that Satan was making it hard for him to visit them. 1 Thessalonians 2.18. So Satan seems quite busy in interfering with what God is doing with God's program. Does that mean Satan is winning? No. As we will see Satan does his worst and God somehow still turns that around for good. 
But I'm going to talk about the human side of it because we know that Satan is active against the Lord. But um, men are responsible for their own behavior. And the, the, thing that, the things that Satan might tweak or uh, impress upon in the hearts of men, it's already there. Those dark things are already there. He's just giving direction to it or vent to it for people or ideas regarding it. But uh, why do people persecute Christians? Why do people persecute the church? Well, most societies, if you just think about it, they have jealously guarded structures and customs and beliefs that they believe make their society work at whatever level it's working at. So Christianity is very often seen as a threat to those very things. It's a threat even if Christians just stop doing uh, the things that they used to do as part of a certain society or culture. If you stop honoring the local gods you are endangering the safety of the community people believe because the gods will be mad and start punishing and withholding the rains from the crops or whatever the thing is. They'll start punishing the community if everybody doesn't participate in their worship. So if you become a Christian you stop worshiping those gods you're a bad guy right away right. That is the root of a lot of the persecution occurring right now in India because Hindu nationalists now are in charge of the Indian government nationally and uh, the gods need to be properly honored and Christianity is against the gods. So it was very much like that in the first century wherever the gospel challenged local gods or an empire built on the cult of the emperor Christians who have a primary loyalty in fact an exclusive loyalty to King Jesus they pose a threat to the social order that's how people see it persecution becomes kind of inevitable in those environments. So it was in the days of the apostles. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12 Beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial or ordeal among you which comes upon you for that your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the, the degree that you are suffering you share the sufferings of Christ keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ you are blessed. Don't be surprised he says. Don't be surprised. Why persecute? Because Christianity is seen as a threat. So don't be surprised about that. But do rejoice because you are extra blessed if you're considered worthy to suffer for Jesus sake. Sometimes the motives are just human weakness like jealousy. That's a word that showed up in Acts chapter 5 verse 17 uh, when Paul was talking about the council and their hatred of the Christians there they were jealous of them. People don't like being less respected or less popular or thought to have the weaker argument or anything like that like we saw in Stephen's case he kind of defeated them in a debate and they were enraged about that they hated being bested. And this becomes especially true when we're talking about power. Governments are very jealous of their power. And it is difficult for them to accept that people might view something else as more worthy of their trust than they are. They don't like supreme loyalty going to anything else other than the government. That's why so many civilizations in the past have presented their rulers as, as deities, as gods. The Egyptians did that. Their rulers were gods. The, um, the Romans did that too eventually when they developed the Roman 
deity cult, the emperor worshiping cult that they required of everybody. You could worship your own God as long as you worship the emperor too. Even in leading into World War II the Japanese kind of elevated the emperor Hirohito into a divine being. He couldn't even be looked at you know it was kind of amazing. But even materialistic governments that have no spiritual impetus at all that have no belief in any gods or point to any gods. Materialistic governments reject all deities and all spirituality. So a Marxist government for example. But they're no less jealous of their power and their position as gods over their people. In fact if the material world is all there is then people really have no inherent value and they can be manipulated any way you want to. They see their power over human beings as absolute. Humans are entirely disposable to a materialist and they are readily disposed of usually in the name of the greater good. So the greater good is always given as a reason for persecution whether it's the greater good in respect to the gods or the greater good in respect to some kind of ideology some political ideology. Governments get to decide what the greater good is and since they claim the power to decide that the greater good cannot accept any authority higher than the government. So Jesus the king of kings is an irritant and the more people that follow him the more irritated they get. I mean he's okay if nobody takes him seriously but those who do take him seriously have to be suppressed or moved outside or taken down. Punished or sidelined either way or eliminated. Materialistic governments don't like that Christianity declares all people to have inherent value either. It doesn't want that message out um, or that people's primary loyalty has to go to God. Now of course when Christianity is married to the government which has happened in history the temptation to exert government power over other belief systems on the behalf of Christian based governments that's a very strong desire as well. That's what I mean governments are always jealous of their own power. So people professing allegiance to Christ can and have in the past persecuted other types of people throughout history. That was a really big issue in the fifth century when Christianity came to have dominance over the Roman Empire. We can pretty much thank St. Augustine for that. He, he laid the found foundation for the church, theological foundation for the church as a persecuting entity. He actually didn't believe in that. He believed in freedom of thought early in his life but he got involved in a, a controversy with some people that wouldn't submit to his opinions and he decided you know what maybe the government just needs to take care of these people and suppress them and so he developed a theology for that which lasted right through the middle ages and uh, it was tragic but that's what happened. Uh, so he was against it before he was for it but when he was for it he actually created a doctrine of persecution. What was it what was the basis of that doctrine? It's for the greater good. It's not good for people to worship pagan gods so we'll stop them with violence if necessary. We'll tear down their altars. We'll um, oppress them. That set the tone for the whole Middle Ages. Well you know what happens when Christians start persecuting? Eventually because governments are the same uh, everywhere in the name of Christianity governments in the name of Christianity will actually start persecuting the most committed Christians because they're going to speak up against government corruption and government evil and things like that. So eventually they're going to turn against that as well. And they're going to have their favored preachers, their favored doctrines and if you're orthodox and they don't line up with orthodoxy they'll start punishing the authentic Christians. Um, it's just like in the Reformation era both the Catholics and the reformers tended to persecute 
the Anabaptists who, are, who were descendants of and theologically speaking people that didn't believe in infant baptism that you should be baptized only when you're a believer. That would destroy Christendom a threat to the greater good so they persecuted Baptists back then. I remember when we were in colonial Williamsburg um, in colonial times Williamsburg was an Anglican uh, city in an Anglican uh, colony Virginia and Baptists were, were punished and so if you go to Colonial Williamsburg on some days they'll have a Baptist guy in the jail a Baptist preacher preaching on the street he'll get arrested and thrown in jail you can go visit him in jail he looks very sad but that was really true that kind of thing was going on in Colonial America so um, all in the name of the greater good right and, and the gospel and the church the authority of the church so it happens that way too so Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3.12 take on a meaning for every age and every time period Indeed he says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Christians are supposed to be very aware of the real possibility that persecution could come to them at some point in their lives. Our lives are supposed to be built on the fact that it could happen to us. So we can't freak out when it comes. Like Peter said don't be surprised if that happens. Christians have to decide what really matters um, so because what happens so often in history is that things the things that we say we, that don't really matter like our house and our property and our bank account and our freedom and things like that we say that doesn't really matter what Jesus is what really matters but you need to be ready for those things to be taken away from you because it could happen and then what are you going to are you going to freak out if that happens and, and despair or are you going to serve Christ wherever he has you those are the questions we have to ask ourselves now for when the time comes. It can be hard because we are attached to the things on earth. Those treasures that can be stripped away at a moment's notice. Even our lives actually. Certain passages in the New Testament require us to order our lives in such a way that at a moment's notice we could lose everything for Jesus and, and that's okay. The Lord himself warned John 15 19 he, Jesus said if you were of the world the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world but I chose you out of the world because of this the world hates you. And that's what we see in our culture. That's what we see around the world. You don't really belong in the world if you are faithful to Jesus. If you're not faithful to him and just sort of our nebulous Christian kind of thing they won't hate you. But if you really believe and you really are committed to following Jesus and preaching the truth speaking the truth you're going to be getting consequences for that may be very unpleasant consequences for that. So in Acts chapter 8 we see the very first church experiencing really a brutal persecution that made the warnings of Jesus very relevant. But you know what? What did the persecution of Saul on the church in Jerusalem actually do? Well it did something really wonderful. If you look at Acts chapter 8 verse 3 says Saul began ravaging the church entering house after house and dragging off men and women he would put them in prison but then verse 4 therefore those who had been scattered went about hiding in caves no that's not what my Bible says preaching the word they went about preaching the word so th as the word quickly spreads through the Christian community that arrests are being made Many flee, so people are taken off to jail. Most people flee, they get out of Jerusalem, they head out for other areas. The, so the two key words in verse 4 are scattered and preaching. They were scattered, not hiding, they were scattered 
and preaching. So they move out to reach out to more people. They do not just sit quietly somewhere and hope that the storm blows over. So wherever they go there are people who haven't heard the gospel and they don't know all the wonderful things God has been doing even in Jerusalem in the first church. So Jesus told his men he said remember in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So Jerusalem has had a full witness for many months and now in God's time the disciples are moving out taking the word out to other communities. Now by disciples I don't mean the apostles because in verse 1 it says they are staying in Jerusalem. So that means those taking the word out beyond Jerusalem were just regular Christians. They weren't apostles. Some people believe that maybe only the Greek speaking Christian community was targeted by Saul and expelled because that was where Stephen was a part of that group. I don't know if that's true or not but it does say that the apostles stayed in, in verse 1 in Jerusalem and they don't seem to have been under threat and then chapters later you find out there's still a pretty thriving church in Jerusalem so it could be that it was a, a targeted at these Greek speaking Christians that was driving them out. But the point is that the word is being preached. It's, it's getting out. So it had to eventually to fulfill the great commission that Jesus gave the apostles and Jesus own words to go out to the communities beyond to the remotest part of the earth. So it had to happen. It had to um, happen eventually and now circumstances, circumstances not under the church's control but circumstances under God's control, that's making it happen. It has to happen. It's forcing the situation. So the Christians don't seem to be in a woe is me sort of state of mind but an opportunity opportunity thinking is what they're doing. Okay this is what's happened. We've been kicked out. We're going to other places for our physical safety but there's people there that need Jesus too. So we're going to start preaching there. I think here at Acton Faith Bible Church we can learn from them in these kind of crazy times. And as times in the culture might get more difficult for us um, we'd be ready. We need to be ready and have our hearts right, our attitudes set. We're going to serve Christ first and foremost. Other things if they do fall away that's okay as long as we have opportunities to preach the word. Whatever is happening around us we should not retreat and we should not get glum and dour but look for opportunities. God will provide opportunities. It might be in a jail cell but he always does it. He's not stopped what he's doing. Uh, and we should not stop what he's doing through us. The first large wave of persecution under Saul was actually used by God to get the gospel to other people. Verse 5 of chapter 8 says Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. <gasps> Samaria that's the second stage isn't it? Jesus said you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and the remotest parts of the earth. So Samaria is starting right there in verse 5. Some amazing things happen there. And we'll look at those next time. Let's pray. Lord our great Father give us hearts like these saints to live for you in any circumstance that you ordain for us to be in. Things might get really hard for us just in life but we can serve you there. That's, that's what we need to give our attention to. If suffering will further the kingdom we accept it and we ask for grace to represent you well wherever you put us, wherever you have us knowing that 
eternal life is eternal and the glories of heaven in for serving you are far greater than any joys we can have on this earth. So let love always rule our hearts and bring us to a place where we are pleasing to you. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. All right, next week, Philip in Samaria. Let's find out what happens there.